It is a privilege this morning to be sharing a little bit with you from the journey of Abraham. Um, I don't know how you felt uh, switching from the book of John to the book of Genesis, but it's interesting how sometimes our mindset can change a little bit when we head into the Old Testament. You know, it's a little bit more difficult to understand. It, 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 let's be honest, sometimes seems a bit more irrelevant. And after all, right, we've got Jesus. We don't really need to bother with all that Old Testament stuff. And yet, if it wasn't for the Old Testament, our picture of God would not be complete. It is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. It's crucial to our understanding of God. And we've seen that to be true as we've even gone through the book of John. Because one of the amazing things, and I'm sure you've realized this, is that all throughout John, it's so based upon the Old Testament. Images in the Old Testament, allusions to the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament to understand who God is. And there's going to be no different as we get into Genesis chapter 15 today. I want to encourage you to have uh, Bibles in front of you. We're going to go through the text uh, quite slowly today. And so I want it to be in front of you so you can read for yourself what God is saying. This is God's word to us. Um, My dad's going to to walk around and uh, if you need a Bible, pop your hand up and he can hand some out to you. That would be great. I'm going to pray for us, and I would encourage you to do the same as we get into it today. Heavenly Father, we just uh, we come before you now, and we ask that you speak to us, Lord. We open your word today knowing that your word is alive and active, um, able to penetrate to the deepest parts of our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that our hearts will be open to you open to hear from you, willing to be honest with ourselves and with you, Lord. I just pray ultimately that you bring glory to your name, that we'll see you more clearly and we'll love you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You know, one of the things that I hate the most in this life, probably actually the worst thing that I can do, and some of you who know me well will know this, is that I hate flying. Flying is my biggest nightmare. I'm I'm a bit of an anxious person and and I'm also quite claustrophobic and so there's nothing worse for me than hopping on a metal tube for 14 hours. The whole experience for me is very uncomfortable. My mind gets filled with lots of fears and doubts and all kinds of things. It doesn't help that my favorite uh, TV show is Air Crash Investigations. (laughs) Figure that one out. I don't know why that is. I just love it. Uh, But when I'm on that plane, it's just a terrible experience. Any slight noise that shouldn't be heard, because I know all the noises that should be heard because of air crash investigations, makes me think that the plane is going to crash. That's my experience. But then there's other people, and I'm sure you've noticed them when you're sitting there, you've just finished buckling up, and the plane's going down the runway, and you look next to you, and there's someone who is already asleep, mouth open, snoring, maybe drooling a little bit, and you think, how is that possible? How are you asleep so quickly? That's my wife. (laughs) Minus the drooling and the snoring, but she is so, so utterly relaxed upon the plane that she can just fall asleep whenever she wants, and it makes me sick. (laughs) But you know what happens every time? We both arrive at the same destination, safe and sound. One a little more wrecked than the other, to be honest, but we both get there. Thankfully, my anxiousness, my doubts, my fears, 
they don't affect the ability of the plane to fly. I mean, it's not like the pilots come up to me and say, Sir, we're really sorry, but because you're so nervous and anxious, we can't actually take off. Thankfully, that's not the way it is. My fears, my doubts, my anxiousness, and Cigna's absolute peace-filled bliss doesn't affect the integrity of the plane. What is important is that we just got on the plane. We both staked our lives on the plane making it to the other end, and it did. Well, as we come to today's passage, we're going to find a man who has his own fears and doubts and questions. A man who, as we go through his story further, finds it difficult at times to trust God. And yet, we will see that in the midst of these fears, in the midst of these doubts, he places his small faith, his small trust in a perfectly faithful, covenant-keeping God. He puts his life in his hands. Why don't we read through our passage for today, Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. We'll read through the whole lot. This is what God's Word says to us. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elysia of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and accounted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of, the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kes- Kenesites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, Ref- the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites, and the Jubasites. Probably said all this wrong. So, so this, this chapter starts out in verse 1 by saying, after these things. 
So, so what things are these? Well, we've been hearing about that the last few weeks, right? We've just come out of this amazing rescue that Abraham has done. He's just rescued Lot from this five kings army uh, in a really incredible fashion. And, and after that, after this incredible rescue, he's come back and he's rejected the spoils of that war. And then this mysterious Melchizedek comes up to him and, and Abraham offers 10% of all his belongings to him. And ultimately what we saw was that Melchizedek was this picture of someone who was greater than Abraham. Someone who ultimately displayed that we needed someone greater than Abraham. Who pointed forward to someone who would appear to be our perfect high priest, which is Jesus himself. But that's not all that's happened, right? We've also seen that God has time and time again come to Abraham and reassured Abraham of what he's going to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you many offspring. In fact, he said to him already, your offspring will be as many as the dust of the earth. It's quite a few. But time and time again, he's been reassured by Abraham. You'll get this land. You will have this offspring. You will be blessed. God makes this unconditional covenant with Abraham that he will do it. So after those things, the things that we just mentioned, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What an amazing statement to begin with by God. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But why is God saying this to Abram? Why is he proclaiming this to Abraham? Is Abraham afraid at this time? By the way, I'm just going to say it now. I'm going to switch between Abram and Abraham. I'm not doing it on purpose. I just, just can't get it right. So. so why is he saying this to Abraham? Is Abraham afraid? Perhaps he's afraid at the moment of retaliation from all the armies he's just defeated. But, but I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I mean, he's amazingly defeated them with such a small army. He's already seen God come through for him. I don't think he's afraid of that. But I think God knows what's going through Abraham's mind. Because God knows our hearts, right? And God knows Abraham's heart. And, and Abraham reveals exactly what's going on in his mind. When God says to him, your reward shall be very great, Abraham isn't so sure. Because despite his material blessing, and we read about that, right? He was exceedingly rich. So rich he couldn't even live in the same land as his kinsmen. He had to leave. That's how rich he was. And yet, he did not have a son. He did not have offspring. And so I think this is where Abraham's fear was rooted. This is where his concern was. Because after all, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's getting pretty old. And more importantly, Sarah's getting pretty old. He's beginning to do the math and it's starting to look unlikely. And then he expresses this in verses 2 and 3 to God. Look at what he says. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elysia of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abraham here expresses his doubts, expresses his concerns to God. 
You haven't given me an offspring. Someone from my house will be my heir. Even though God has already told Abraham that he will have offspring, as many as the dust of the earth, Abraham has his doubts here. He's not so sure that God's actually going to come through on what he has promised. Because from his point of view, things are starting to look pretty bleak. He's not so sure God will come through on his promise. And I wonder this morning, as you sit here, if you've ever felt like that. If you've ever doubted that God's going to come through on his promise. If you've ever doubted that God perhaps is with you in a situation that you're walking through. Perhaps you've even seen him come, come through in the past, and yet you doubt and struggle to see that he's going to come through this time. I know I have been in that situation many times. Well, there's good news. If you're like that, you're actually like Abraham. Abraham expresses his doubts and frustrations to God. In fact, you'll see not only in this chapter, but all throughout Abraham's story, that usually when Abraham speaks, it's usually to doubt God or to complain against God. Just like he does here. And yet, one thing that's important to note is he does this to God. He brings these things to God in the context of a relationship with him. You see, God can handle our biggest doubts and fears and questions. What's important is that we bring them to him in the context of that relationship. He's not afraid of that. He can handle those things. Maybe there's things this morning that are going on in your heart and mind that you need to bring before God. And how does God respond to this? Does he rebuke Abraham for his lack of belief, for his lack of trust? No. What does he do? He reassures Abraham. Take that to heart. He reassures Abraham. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God reassures him, You'll have your own son. Not only will you have your own son, there'll be as many as the stars of the sky. I wonder if we view God like this when we have these questions and doubts. A God who reassures, who doesn't rebuke us in the questions, who doesn't rebuke us in the doubts. Abraham is reassured by God here. And God tells him to go outside and look at the stars. I wonder if you've done this recently. Have you gone outside at night and looked at the stars? I mean, I don't mean in Melbourne. If Abraham had been in Melbourne, he would have looked outside and seen, what, two stars? Two offspring? I mean, not that impressive, right? But I mean in the middle of nowhere. We did it recently when we went away to Bright. We went to the middle of nowhere and looked up and it's pretty incredible. It's impossible to count, pretty much as hard as counting the dust of the earth. And God says, this is what your offspring will be. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, God's original promise to Abraham, he reassures him. And what is Abraham's response here? Well, he doesn't speak, which is probably a good thing. But verse 6 says this, And he believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. Now this is a pretty big statement in the context of God's word, in the context of the whole Bible. And so, so what is it saying here? Well, I don't think it's actually as complicated as it, as it may seem. God has promised Abraham that he will do what he has said that he will do. And Abraham trusts God. You see, in the midst of Abraham's fears, doubts, and questions, he puts his faith, he puts his trust in God, that God will do what he has said that he will do. And this is ultimately what faith is. It's putting our trust that God will do what he has said, that God himself is trustworthy, even in the midst of those questions and fears. And this is what Abraham displays. He puts his life in God's hands. But it also says that the Lord counts this trust, counts this faith as righteousness to him. Now, it's important that we understand what this is not saying. It's not saying that Abraham's faith here shows that he is righteous. It's not saying that Abraham's faith shows that he is righteous. In fact, it's not even saying that Abraham is righteous. It's saying that because of Abraham's faith, he is being considered righteous. Righteousnesses have been counted to him, even though he's not righteous. Now, this is perhaps the most profound statement in all of the Bible. And so to help with us to be really clear on what this is talking about, I want us to quickly turn to Romans chapter 4 and look at verses 1 to 5. Romans chapter 4, 1 to 5, it talks about this exact scene that we're seeing in Genesis 15. Romans 4, 1 to 5 says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So do, do you catch there what's going on in these verses? Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. He had nothing that he could bring before God. Nothing that he could say, look God, look what I've done so that you can bless me. He had nothing. In fact, more than that, Abraham was ungodly. That's what it says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but at his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the who? The ungodly. Abraham was ungodly. He had nothing that could possibly help him, but he believed in God. He believed that God would bless him despite him. He believed in God's ability to do what he could do, not in his own. And then God declares Abraham as righteous. Not that he is righteous, he is ungodly, but he is declared righteous, declared perfect, declared spotless, given a righteousness that is not his own. 
And so within this one verse in Genesis 15:6 is the key to God's salvation story in his whole Bible. And I want you to see clearly that it's in the midst of his questions and difficulty that Abraham places his faith in God. Abraham had a small faith in a faithful God. It is not the greatness of Abraham's faith here that is the point of this story, but the greatness of the God of Abraham in whom he had faith in. But the question remains in this Genesis text, how? How can God make a declaration like this? How can he count righteousness to Abraham? Well, let's keep going through our Genesis passage. Genesis 15, looking at verse 7. This seems to take place perhaps on another day, perhaps the next day. It seems to be a different time to what we've just read. But God again starts out in verse 7 making a declaration to Abraham. He says in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I really love this statement. God reminds Abraham here who was really responsible for his amazing life turnaround. He reminds Abraham that it wasn't you who brought yourself out of the land. You were too busy with your family worshipping false gods, far too busy to care about me. And by my grace and mercy, I brought you out. I wonder if we realize that about our own Christian walks. Do you realize that it wasn't by your own brilliance and intellect that you somehow discovered that God was the way, the truth, and the life, and you followed after him? It wasn't by your brilliance. It was God who called you out by his utter grace and mercy. And thank God he did. If he'd waited for me to figure it out, I wouldn't have. And so God makes this amazing statement to Abraham. I brought you out, and therefore, I'm going to give you this land. In the same way that I brought you out, it wasn't by your doing, I'm going to give you the land for your offspring. Again, this unconditional promise of God, we see it coming through in these verses. But once again, Abraham speaks. Not a good sign. Look what he says in verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He has a question. He has his struggle still. Despite the heights of verse 6 that he put his faith in God and he was considered righteous, he's still not so sure that God's going to do what he said. You know, the perfect faith, a perfect faith would have simply rested in what God said here would have simply have said, look, God, you've said it, so you're going to do it. But Abraham's faith was not perfect. It was still mixed with doubts, like all our faiths here. This is why I said before that Abraham displays a small faith in a faithful God. How am I to know, God? How am I to know that this is actually going to take place? But once again, notice, God doesn't rebuke him for his lack of immediate belief. He reassures him. But this time, in a somewhat more confusing way. Or at least when we initially look over it. God initiates a covenant with Abraham here. And it's pretty strange. So why don't we look at it? 
verses 9 to 11. I want you to follow along in those verses. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of what is going on here. So God, God basically tells Abraham to bring some animals to him. Specifically a cow that's three years old, pretty specific. A female goat, also three years old, even more specific than that. A ram, you guessed it, three years old. A turtle dove, doesn't matter what age or gender apparently. And the last thing, not a three-year-old pigeon like you would expect, but that would have been a disaster, a young pigeon. How you know what a young pigeon is, I have no idea. But this is the collection of animals that he's to bring. And then Abraham cuts these animals in half. Now, picture this in your mind. You don't have to picture them being cut up. But picture this scene in your mind. The animals are cut up and Abraham lays them out one after the other. So we have this line of cut up animals. Have you got that in your head? I know some of you are probably thinking, thanks for that, probably won't get it out of my mind for the rest of the day. But this is the scene, and we need to picture it. And then we get verse 11, where these birds of prey, these vultures, are coming down, trying to attack the carcasses, as they do. And then we have Abraham running back and forth, kind of trying to get these vultures away. It's it's really quite an odd scene when you picture it. And so, I mean, the application is obvious, right? When you're cutting up your animals, watch out for vultures. Not quite. But what is going on here? Well, it only makes sense if it links to what God says next. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God here promises, prophesies to Abraham what exactly is going to be, take place. There's going to be a darkness that comes over the nation of Israel, a darkness that comes over his offspring, and they're going to be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years. Now, to be honest, no one really knows what the birds mean, but my best take of what it does mean is that the birds are like a symbolic thing of what's going to take place. God's covenant that Abraham has laid out, these animals that have been laid out, the vultures are coming down to try and stop God's covenant taking place. In the same way, Israel are going to be taken captive by a nation, Egypt. It's going to appear like God's covenant is under threat, and yet God's going to drive them out in the same way Abraham did. It's a picture that's taking place here. Now remember, it's easy just to think about Abraham here and how this would have been nice information for him, right? Cool, that's good to know, but it's this book was being written by Moses to the people of Israel after they had been rescued by God out of Egypt. Can you imagine how encouraging it would be to see that their years of oppression were actually prophesied by God, but not only that, their, year, their rescue was prophesied by God. That's encouraging, right? God's in control. It wasn't a mistake that you guys went into captivity and I rescued you. I was in control the whole time. And then it continues, and God gives Abraham more assurance here. Verse 15, As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, 
peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they, your offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. More assurance. Abraham, you're going to have a good long life. And your people will come back to this very land which I've already told you about, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Just take note of that verse, God's mercy and compassion on the Amorites. He will not destroy them as a people until their sin has completely overrun them. In the same way that God did not bring the flood until every thought and was, was evil in everyone's minds is the same thing here. God is merciful to sinners. But now we're reaching the climax of this ritual that's taking place here. So let's, let's follow on, keep the scene in your head. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates and all the Ites lands. So, so get this scene in your mind. God, uh, Abraham set out these animals. He spent all day trying to get these vultures away from the carcasses. Probably a pretty tiring job. Probably waiting for God to kind of give him some indication that something is going to happen. I'm sure he's had some idea of what this ritual was, right? But nothing takes place. And so, he goes to sleep. Thinking perhaps, you know, perhaps we'll finish this tomorrow. So Abraham is asleep, all is dark, all is quiet, all is still, and then we get verse 17. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between these pieces. In the dead of the night, Abraham off the scene, this happens. And this seems to be the height of the covenant, right? This seems to be the very thing that is important because straight after this, we get the words, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So so how can we understand what's going on here? Because when you read this, it's a bit weird. It's probably one of those passages where you read and go, cool, he made a covenant, probably don't need to worry about all the weird animals and stuff. I've done that before. But we need to understand it because it's really important in the context of God's purposes. So first of all, what is this ritual? This is actually a pretty common ritual back in Abraham's time. We get an allusion to it in Jeremiah 34, 18, which says this. Listen to this. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. So did you hear that? Animals cut in half walking between its pieces. So, so the idea of this covenant was those who the covenant was being made between two individuals, after these animals had been laid out, both members of the covenant would pass through and essentially declare that if we do not fulfill the covenant, let what has happened to these animals happen to us. In other words, if I don't fulfill the covenant, I'm going to die. That's what usually would take place. And yet, did you notice what happens in this story? This is a covenant between Abraham and God, right? Where's Abraham? 
sleeping. He's had a big day though, so it's fair enough. But something does pass through in the dead of the night. A flaming torch and a smoking pot. Fire and smoke. And this may pass over our head, but it would not have passed over the heads of the Israelites. Remember, this is who's reading this passage. They've got the law law from God on Mount Sinai. How did God appear to them? In fire and smoke. How did God lead them in the wilderness? By a cloud by day and by fire at night. This is a clear picture. It's all over the Old Testament. It's a clear representation of God himself. And so I hope you can catch the beauty of what's going on here. Here are these animal pieces laid out as they should be, ready for both members of the covenant to walk through, and yet Abraham is nowhere to be seen. He's sleeping, and God himself passes through these animals and proclaims to Abraham that if I don't fulfill this covenant, let me die. Not you. I'm taking this upon myself. You know, if Abraham had walked through, he might have dropped dead immediately. That's why he ultimately couldn't pass through. If this covenant was dependent upon Abraham in any way, he would have messed it up. And do you know how I know that? Because look at the covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. Time and time again, the Old Testament, they messed it up over and over and over again. But this is a picture of God's unconditional covenant with us. He takes it upon himself. He leaves Abraham out of the picture, despite Abraham's past stumbling, his present fears and doubts that we've looked at, and his future sin that we're going to see next week. God says, if it doesn't happen, it's on me. It's not on you. This chapter presents to us this incredible picture of our God that we serve. Abraham brings his fears and doubts to God, puts his faith in him. God counts him as righteous and then takes this covenant upon himself. God alone passes through and swears, I'll die if this is not done. But church, I hope you can see that this is the story of the Bible. You see, God here displays to Abraham, displays to Israel that he himself is taking the covenant upon his own shoulders. He is willing to die if he does not bless people. But do you know what, church? He, he already knew, right? He, he already knew what was going to pay, take place, right? He already knew that ultimately the fulfillment of this covenant to bless all the nations of the earth was only ever going to happen by a death was only ever going to happen by his death. And not because he failed the covenant, but to fulfill the very covenant that he was making with Abraham. Because you see, there was a different scene thousands of years later. A different scene thousands of years later where a man called Jesus walked alone. Abandoned by his disciples, darkness had also fallen over the land, cross on his back. He walked alone to do what? To take 
the covenant upon himself. God himself hanging on the cross, dying. Why? Because we're all ungodly. Because every single one of us, including Abraham, has rejected God as their Lord, has rejected a loving relationship with Him to get our joys and hopes from things that were never supposed to be. That's all of us. And God Himself hangs there on the cross, taking our sins upon Himself, the sins of the world, our wrongdoing, our rejection of Him upon Himself. God's wrath, the wrath that each one of you deserved here, the wrath that Abraham deserved upon Christ, upon himself. And yet, he rises again. He rises again, and you see, he was the acceptable sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. He paid for all our sins, and by his resurrection, he shows that sin, death, and the curse that has run through every single human who has ever lived had no hold over him because he was the perfect Savior. God himself takes the covenant upon himself on the cross. This is what Genesis 15 points to, church. And it's an amazing picture of our amazingly faithful God. Despite all our mess, despite all our brokenness, He takes it upon Himself. And so what do we, what do we take from this chapter? Well, I mean, the obvious and only question really to be asked from this chapter is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? faith. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've never gotten on that plane. Perhaps you're someone who has never put your lives in Jesus' hands. You've never come to the understanding that Jesus paid for your sins upon the cross. I want to encourage you this morning to take that step, to put your trust in God to understand that it's not about you. You may still have your questions and your doubts, But God is faithful. Trust what He has said He has done. He cannot lie. You know, this is the only reason that God could count Abraham as righteous. Because of Christ. Because on that cross, Christ takes your sins upon Himself, your ungodliness, and in exchange, He gives you His righteousness. Have you come to trust in Jesus? I encourage you to do that today. Maybe you've been in church for a long time, but I encourage you to take that step, to come into a relationship with the Creator of all things, a relationship that is not based on trying to be good enough that one day you might be acceptable before God, but a relationship that is based on grace. Even when we stuff up, He forgives us. And to those of us who are already on the plane, with quite a good-looking plane of people here. I want to encourage you this morning to look to Christ, to look to our perfect covenant-keeping God, to understand that what He has begun, He will finish, to know that those who He has brought out, He will bring in, You know, you may at times feel that your faith is weak. 
I know how it is. I know how easy it is to look inside, to see our own sinfulness, to feel the temptation within and the temptation on the outside of our lives. In all the difficulties that come upon us, it's so easy to get so self-absorbed to look at us. But know this. Know that the quality of your faith, the weakness of your faith, does not at all affect the integrity of God's covenant and promise. He will do it. Martin Luther said this, Even if I am feeble in faith, I still have the same treasure and the same Christ that others have. There is no difference. Through faith in him we are all perfect. You've got on that plane, and I would encourage you to trust in Christ, to trust in your perfect covenant-keeping God, to put our small faith in the faithful God. Because you know, we'll only ever grow. We'll only ever grow as Christians to the extent to which we are looking at Jesus and His perfectness and His faithfulness and His beauty. I want to finish by reading some verses out from Hebrews 6. It talk, again, it talks about this exact moment. Hebrews six thirteen to 20 says this. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, it is impossible, for it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as, a sh- as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. How awesome is that? We can have great assurance. An anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Let us look to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just um, thank you for this passage in Genesis. We thank you uh, for this covenant that you made with Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, that your salvation plan is not dependent upon us, that it was your work from start to finish, that this ultimately led to you sending Christ to pay for our sins, to take upon himself your wrath that we deserved. And yet, Lord, you rose again, you rose again and showed that you had victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the curse. And those of us who have placed our trust in you can have great encouragement. Lord, I pray for those people in this room who need that great encouragement. Lord, we all need it to different extents. I pray that you will encourage our hearts as we look to you, the unchangeable one. Lord, help us 
in the midst of the lies of the devil, the lies of the world, the lies of our own flesh, to cling to you, that we may grow in this place in our faith, Lord. And we owe all of that to you. And so, Lord, we just look to you now. And as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that this song may just be bringing glory to your name, that we may be simply resting our eyes upon your work, upon what you've done in our lives. But we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.